welcome, welcome, welcome to another episode of the Baylor Law Criminal Law Society podcast. My name is Emma Catlett, and I have today with me Garrett Farrell as a co-host. How are you doing today, Garrett? I'm good. How about yourself? I'm good. Thanks. And our guest today is Mr. David Gwynn Jr. How are you doing today, Mr. Gwynn? Pretty well. Thank you. Good. Thank you for joining us. We really appreciate you taking the time. Not a, not a burden at all. I'm glad to swing by the law school. Thank you. So usually how we like to start these off is just asking you about your story. So how you got into the career you're in, where you went to school, um, just basically how you got from point A to point B. Well, there wasn't a lot of conscious voluntary thought to it. I grew up in Waco. My father taught at this law school. I mean, his first day on the job was probably 10 days before I was born. Uh, Dean McSwain had him teach criminal law and something else. He had finished his LLM at Michigan on like May 11th, uh, drove down here. Mom was already here. Talk about a tough lady. She's pregnant out to here and she's gone ahead to get the house ready. Mm-hmm. And uh, dad started here in May 28th, I was born. So from the time I was five or six, being introduced to someone at St. Paul's Church or elsewhere where I had to, like a trained Aggie, whip out, look them in the eyes, shake my hand and say, hello, I'm David Gwynn. Uh, it's, oh, are you gonna be a lawyer like your daddy? Well, what does an oldest son say? Yes. Now that was very much in doubt by the time I was in high school because I walked past the honor roll, but I was never on it. <laughs> and when I sat down with my high school guidance counselor after SAT results came back fall of my senior year, she was, what do you want to be? What do you want to do? And I thought maybe be a coach or maybe be an FBI agent. And uh, she started to grill me about my SAT score because it didn't match my class rank. It was kind of good. And I, I didn't know what good was though. You know, we didn't have all this stuff now where you take prep courses and you just, mm-hmm go out there and take it and maybe go to college, maybe you don't. She only even joined the Marine Corps. And you understand, 1983, we were not, we hadn't been at war for 20 years. We were in a post-Vietnam spinoff and uh, she thought my better choice would be to be a Marine. And uh, I remember seeing those guys beat people up in the Walmart Cloth World parking lot (laughs) when they got back in August and September after basic and thought, well, okay, cool. But I had a really neat uh, high school coach who saw me coming out of the counselor's office, asked what was going on, and pretty quickly after that, I was enrolling to be a freshman at Baylor. So I went to undergrad here, uh, emphasized in political science, because like everybody, I thought that would help me for law school, but it really doesn't, other than you're reading a whole lot of material, and you do get one or two fundamental constitutional development classes where you get to read some Supreme Court cases. Uh, but it was right here. Baylor had an old program uh, called the 3-3 program. It was a vestige of World War II designed to take advantage of the GI Bill. You had a lot of young men who were, you know, lived through it, 22, 23, and they're coming out of Depression America, largely rural, and uh, they didn't want to be in college for eight years. They didn't want to you know, pledge SAE and hang out. They wanted to get in, get their education, and go home and have, you know, a different career than, you know, the one their parents did or didn't have. So you could go to undergrad, and after 96 hours, you applied to law school, and your first four quarters counted simultaneously towards your BA and your JD, which, as a student, is great bang for the buck. University, some accountant somewhere is raising their hands saying, eh, not so much. 
but and I think they've stopped that program. But I was on that. So for my story, I finished Riker Catholic High School in 84, and by July of 89, I'm out of Baylor Law School. And of course, some people look at my resume and say, that's not possible. <laughs> I said, well, <laughs> let me tell you a story, it is. Uh, I went to Johnson County, uh, Cleburne, Texas, which was my father's hometown as an assistant DA. And uh, I never really intended to do criminal law at all. Okay, so how did you end up getting into it if it wasn't what you know you thought you were going to do? Well, people grow and change. Everyone does, and you will too, not to mention legal markets change. But uh, I'm sure it still goes on. But in law school, you pick up a lot of what I call conventional wisdom, also known as gossip. And it's what other kids say. What's the great job? What's the big deal? And you don't have a comparative basis. You don't have anything, typically, if you're a traditional student, just went to college, just came to law school, you don't know anything about the legal field. Even if your parent is a lawyer, unless you've gone to work with them and listened a lot, you don't know. But back then, Baylor was the civil insurance defense super worker factory. And we were all wanting to go to Fulbright and Jaworski, Bracewell Patterson, Porter and Clements, and slave away for six or seven years as an associate, and then finally get into some mid-level partnership and uh, crank the hours uh, defending the toxic tort folks and the car wreck folks and the truck wreck folks and getting paid by the breath. And uh, that's what I thought I wanted to do, not because I liked it, but that was what I thought would uh, please the faculty or please my father. And uh, I was, again, kind of like high school. I wasn't on the honor roll. Well, in, in law school, I wasn't on the law review. I knew people who were. I'd go by and get them, hey, we got a basketball game at five. <laughs> you know, but uh, I wasn't on the law review. Did good at the oral advocacy exercises. Uh, and the plan then, the career plan was, well, why don't you go to a DA's office for a year or two? and get some trial experience. And then be, maybe you can re-interview with these bigger firms. Did this stuff we had then called workers' compensation, which was one of the first things to die and one of the first waves of tort reform. Uh, and I could pull vault back over to the civil side, interview as someone with experience who they can you know, hand a file to and say, go to Hillsborough and try this subrogation case, or we need you over here, you know, go do this. Uh, and then that market disappeared right about the time I was going to do that. Uh, we had a big, I had made uh, a lot of changes just growing. Uh, first year as an assistant DA in Cleburne, it was so much fun. Uh, you know, we got to go out and supervise search warrants. We got to review and work on the affidavit with the officer to make sure we complied with the Fourth Amendment before they kicked doors on a house or took down a drug lab or something as mundane as picking up a lot of stolen property out of a house because they figured out where it is. Um, but I had a wife and a child and my very first paycheck was $816 net. Uh, and I got two of those a month. And everybody wanted all their bills paid at the beginning of the month. So you can see where that has pressure. But we got to go to court and Mr. Bulware was my boss. He's a 71 Baylor grad, Dan Bulware. He died a year or two ago, wonderful lawyer wonderful man. Um, he was had us pretty steeped with a lot of uh, 
honor and seriousness in the job and the power you wield, and how careful you had to be and how you had to do things right. And this is pre, you know, Brady's there, but Brady's actually kind of weak because of the materiality requirement. We had higher requirements. It was Dan's personal code of honor. You give him everything. And this was when we didn't have open discovery or a 39.14 of the code of criminal procedure like we do now. But within a year, of course, I was eaten up with it. I'm a 23-year-old boy. I'm a father. I'm protective. I want to protect my son and my wife and save the world. So within a year, I go from looking down at criminal law to a year later, I can't imagine doing anything else, and figured out couldn't stay on the state side for a career unless you become the elected district attorney because it just it's hard to make that pay for a family and the option was to be a U.S. attorney and I had interviewed uh, down in Beaumont and uh, yay I was going to maybe get to go be an assistant U.S. attorney and we had Desert Storm uh, which was our first big offensive into Iraq and back then Congress would Oh, they would pose and say stupid stuff to their base, but then they'd close the door, turn around, roll up sleeves, and come up with a problem, solve a solution. One of the things they did was, look, we can't go broke over this war. So the president had to back off his no new taxes campaign pledge, which didn't help him. Uh, but they also had a federal hiring freeze. So it didn't matter whether you were the Pentagon, the Department of Agriculture, or a U.S. Attorney's Office, and you needed a new janitor. You couldn't hire anybody. <laughs> so I couldn't go to my job. And I ended up trying to do a general civil practice south of Odessa in a place called Crane. Um, only town in a 900 square mile county, but there's a lot of oil. And if you know anything about oil wells and work, it's dangerous. There's caustic chemicals, there's geology. Uh, back then especially, <coughs> some of your Co-workers might be a bit of a wahoo. Um, three wraps a chain and get it going to make the rig run. There's a lot of injuries. And I moved there with the intention of having a general practice, but really trying to do workers' compensation. I'd learned a lot about it because there in Cleburne, there was Santa Fe Railway. There was John's Manville Fiberglass Factory. There was the Caprice plant from Chevrolet in Arlington, Brown and Root, extremely hard work in blue collar and naturally a lot of on-the-job injuries. And the month I signed my credit note with the bank in Crane that was financing this venture, um, the signy die, May 31st of that year, they killed workers' comp in Texas, which on the one hand means people can't get access to court for that or with the help of a lawyer. The other half is lawyers don't get to defend anything. So it really cleared up a big uh, accounts payable part of the ledger for the insurance industry in Texas. Now we still have a workers comp system, but it's much more administrative. It's more of a calculated predictable chart of temporary income benefits and TIBs and SIBs and all these sort of little things on the chart. But uh, begrudgingly, I started doing criminal defense. Okay. Now you're very involved in the Texas Criminal Defense Lawyers Association, uh, also known as the TCDLA. Yeah. Um, what is your sort of involvement in that currently? And uh, yeah. Well, now I'm an officer. I'm the second vice president here this summer. I'll become first vice president, and next year I'll be president. 
TCDLA is the connecting lifeblood for anybody who does criminal defense in Texas. Whether you are a general law practitioner who just dabbles in it because you have to to keep your judge happy or just because people come in the door and hire you or whether you have a firm that exclusively practices criminal law, TCDLA is absolutely indispensable. Um, I know I knew very little about doing criminal defense when I'd opened my private practice. You got to understand, I didn't, and I'll borrow this phrase because it's kind of in common parlance now, but I didn't, quote, identify as a criminal defense lawyer, unquote. I was a lawyer. And if you had a divorce or a take or pay case or needed a codicil to your will or, okay, you know, your kid or brother or self has a criminal case, okay, I'll get hired on it. But I didn't know much of what to do, and I bought some books uh, from Matthew Bender by Tegan Health, a real good little loose-leaf series, and started hitting it pretty hard. And I was down in Reeves County in Fort Stockton on a case, and this is when you had to litigate every piece of discovery you could get in a criminal case. Like, well, if your client didn't make a statement, they didn't have to give you a police report, you know, may or maybe not a lab report. It was kind of trial by ambush and surprise. And you know they'd say things to you like, you know what happened? Ask your client. Um, and it, part of my naivete, I'd also been used to the way practice was in Cleburne. And um, if I were asking for discovery and I had a case on point or a reason the indictment was effective and I had case law directly on point that supported it, naive me, I thought the judge would grant my motion. <laughs> and this judge wasn't, and I was getting flustered, and there was case after case, and I'd, Your Honor, we cite you to the Dominguez versus case, here it is, da-da-da-da, and I made a copy for the state, copy for them, and they just kind of laughed as they dropped it on the bench, denied, overruled, and uh, as I got through with my last case that morning, uh, I felt a tug on my left shoulder and turned and looked, and there was this short man with a western yoke jacket and a few teeth missing, and he's kind of sun-battered and worn. And he goes, uh, young man, uh, you got a lot of piss and vinegar. I think you'd be a fine member of TCDLA. And, you know, I, sir, what are you doing past the bar? Only lawyers are all out up here. <laughs> no, it was Martin Underwood from Comstock, Texas, who if you will Westlaw reversals by Martin Underwood, that guy's made more law than we have hairs on our head. And he is a fantastic lawyer who chooses with his wife, uh, Jane, to live in the old post office in Comstock, Texas, near Del Rio. And kind of an old 60s UT hippie liberal, he travels West Texas uh, defending the doomed and damned and condemned and, and charged. And uh, I didn't even know what TCDLA was. And he explained it to me and handed me a pamphlet that I could fill out. <clears throat> and when I listened to him, I had to explain to him, I said, Mr. Underwood, that's real neat, but I got a wife and now two kids and we live in Crane and I, you know, I can't afford to join. He goes, I'll pay your first year and I want you to go to trial college in March. Well, if you're at Baylor and you've had practice court, you would like trial college because it's a very intense week, starts on a Sunday night and Sunday through Thursday, it used to be a sexual assault case, State versus Jim Stone. Now we use a, a different hypothetical, but you, in a group of about 80 people, hear lectures, see demonstrations, and go to a room in small group with a videotape and uh, drama students from right there in, uh, excuse me, Huntsville, Sam Houston State come over and play the role of witnesses, and they do a great job of ad-libbing and improving. 
and you do your crosses, you do your directs, you do vor dire, you do an opening, uh, four days with a brand new peer group of your small group of seven to eight people and your large group. It's a good bonding experience. Um, and even though I'd been trying cases as a prosecutor for three years, and even though I had Baylor's practice court, that was a truly transformative CLE for me. Um, not only did I make incredible friends, but it changed my mindset. And I met people, okay, you talk about small world. Uh, I drove in, the drive from Crane to Huntsville is not a short one in a regular cab Chevrolet pickup, <laughs> but I was a worker and uh, they'd given us the problem. So I stayed up till about 11.30 Sunday night, knowing we would go to small group, break out Vordires by 10.30 or 11. And I wrote out what I thought was a good Vordire. And well, we had our initial meeting, introductory lecture on the law of Vordire, peremptory challenges, Batson. <clears throat> and then one of the best lawyers in the country got up and gave us a lecture that incorporated a lot of demonstration. His name's Jeff Kearney. He went to Waco Richfield High School. His dad had Mr. Jack's bridal shop. Uh, and then on Valley Mills, I, I knew who this guy was. Uh, he played tight end to TCU. He was this handsome man, and he got up and did a demonstration of Vordire that was so alien to what I thought it was that as I trudged back up the auditorium steps to go to my little breakout room, I threw the Vordire I had written in the trash. And when we got to a room, they said, who'll volunteer to be first? I did not because I could show off or anything, but because I thought, I won't forget what he said. So I just completely imitated what he did. And I was in trial the following Monday uh, there in Odessa in the 70th District Court, and I used those same things that next week in that trial, and it made a big difference. That's so awesome. going on and on and on to your questions, but TCDLA back then just put on four seminars a year they're called anchor seminars, and of course you had to travel. If you're in Crane, Texas, you're going a long way. Uh, they had a great one on cross-examination in Arlington. The bus for me was I could stay at La Quinta for $69 a night, <laughs> take a loaf of bread and some peanut butter for food, and, and I was good to go, kind of like camping indoors. Uh, now TCDLA, through a grant from the Court of Criminal Appeals, has 40 CLE activities, whether it's Mindful Monday to uh, kind of the travel and road show that is CDLP where we go to small and mid-market places that the seminar probably wouldn't cash flow. You know, when you go to Nacogdoches, Lufkin, Tyler, Longview, Victoria, uh, San Angelo, Abilene, Amarillo, you're not gonna have more than 40, 50 attendees. And a lot of those lawyers really don't see themselves as quote criminal defense lawyers, so they can't justify up and leaving the office and their practice for two or three days to go to a big seminar. But if it's right there in their hometown and they can roll out of bed, wife and kids are everybody in places, uh, you know, and then it also helps for single parents. You know, we have a lot of that. And so they can come get their needs and it's not just checking the box for the state bar, you know, to say, yeah, I got my 15 hours for the year. CLE now has transformed into something where, gosh, I need to know this, gosh, I need to know that, I wanna get better at this, can I catch this lecture? And TCLA has everything and more that you need for networking, for learning, and for getting there 
to be a really capable lawyer. So uh, how do law students then get involved in TCDLA? Is there a way that law students you can bet. get involved? We have law stu student members. You can go to our website, tcla.com, and it's great. As a law student, then you can then get plugged into the listserv, which is where all the criminal defense lawyers are talking. And, you know, I'm in trial. So-and-so just tried to offer this or brand-new witness testimony. Is that a Watkins objection? You know, what do we do? Uh, also, now some people ask others to do all their research for them. <laughs> and, you know, I, I'm not crazy about that, but we have some really generous members, Stan Schwieger, Kristen Brown, among others, who will pop in with the magical miracle answer. And then Professor Allison Clayton at Texas Tech is just marvelous. But uh, there's not only that, but you make friends all over the state and it's a small world. And you're gonna encounter people who, oh gosh, my fill in the blank here has a problem in, whether it's Houston, San Augustine, Del Rio, Mission, Sierra Blanca, Perryton, you know, we're gonna know somebody mm -hmm. and, and get you some help or get you connected so you can find out what's going on or what the local practice is. Because there's the law we read in the code, there's the law we read in the cases, and then every single place has its own special persnickety little, well, that's just the way we've always done it. And you gotta jump through those hopes and it, it hoops. And it may not be written down in local rules. You just need to know. You know, if you're in Childress, you get Earl Griffin because he knows the rope and he knows all the coordinators and he knows all the clerks. And we all know Luke Inman, the DA, but you get Earl to, you just don't go without local counsel. So could you tell us a little bit about kind of your day-to-day -day life as a defense attorney um, and just kind of what, are, what did your schedule look like? How many cases do you handle at a time? And kind of how much control, I guess, do you have as a defense attorney rather than as a prosecutor over like how often you go to trial and things like that? Well, that changes. Um, as you all know, when you take your ethics class, rule 102, what is it, A3, there are three choices a criminal defendant has in Texas, and that's whether we go to trial or not, whether that's in front of a judge or a jury, and whether or not that defendant testifies. Past that, it's lawyer's choice on what you do. Similar though, you can't make somebody plead, and if you're going to encourage a client to turn down a plea offer and go to trial, you better do that in writing and in front of a witness, because if it all goes south, there's a grievance headed your way and going to be a writ of ineffective assistance and especially in this society uh, every one of their family members is about to whip out their smartphone and start blistering you online whether it's google reviews yelp avo a jillion other places you're about to get blistered dan and i and mayor and now kelton we, we work pretty hard i get to the office at 7.15, 7.30. That doesn't mean I didn't have my laptop on at home at six, reading something, working on it. We're there in the office until after five most days. Friday's typically not. I try to get out of there by 5.15. I, we live in a little town called Idaloo, just east of Lubbock. We've been there 24 years. Uh, our boys are all grown and have graduated, but when you're a community like that, the school is school and church are kind of your hub of your social life. So uh, we go watch the kids, even though we don't have anybody playing. Uh, now we, some of the kids playing are the children of kids we knew when they played. And I, I like to get out and go to Idaloo games and Wendy and I do things together. 
think May of 2001 or two, I had five trials that month. I had three DWIs, I had a sexual assault, and a federal fraud trial, all in one month. Uh, now we go back, I had a trial in late January in Wichita Falls, and hadn't been in court in a trial for six months before that. Uh, there was a time, you know, I went, at one point it was one trial a year for a little bit, and in some years it's 25 or 30. That depends on the case, the client, the prosecutor, the facts, the offer, what people want to do. Um, as a defense lawyer, if you want more trials quickly, the court-appointed route is there because you get some people who uh, have maybe have some really bad facts, they may have a bad history, and the DA's office says this is front page material, no offers, or you can plead to 50 or 60. And really, that's a great place to get creative and to push as a trial attorney is because you know, there isn't a choice. There's nothing to do. Question, work at it, go at it. And while the contemporary wisdom of the day may say, oh, you're going to lose. Why would you do that? It's not you. It's about them. And plus, you have some people, too, who, despite the facts and law and best advice, uh-uh, they want a trial. <laughs> you know, they want to have their day. Okay. Uh, people are coming in hiring you are probably a little more circumspect and aware. Although some come in and say, nope, our back's against the wall, we gotta try it, we gotta take our best shot, the government's coming for us, and that's what we wanna do. So to answer your many questions, one of them, I don't get to control when I go to trial or not. I definitely have cases I pick out that I hope go to trial, or that I can tell just by the shape and contours of the case and the jurisdiction and the prosecutor, I know it's gonna be a trial. We'll never work this out. Uh, the client picks that. A DA can have a lot more control. They can just tell everybody you're going to trial. Or uh, we see it at dockets around the state. Lawyers are hanging around. Uh, they're getting their appointments and everybody knows this case is coming. It's been in social media on the paper. Um, state of Texas versus this genius. And you know they got four priors and the DA just looks at you and you drew the black bean. You know, no offers, we're going to trial three priors, a confession, a victim, you're it. And you, you can do that every month. You can do that twice a month, if you can get the discovery, if you can investigate and prepare. And that's one of the things that's changed in the practice so much is what used to be simple files now has a lot more information. So if you, you get a client that you think you know is guilty, how does your trial strategy change from somebody that you may think is not guilty of whatever they're being convicted You You of? look at, you do your best for everybody just the same. You know, whether they tell me in privilege, private or not, yeah, I'm good for it, isn't really the question. Uh, it's what does the government have? What's its case? How does it bring it? How does it prove it? Um, you know, what's ultimate justice in this case? Because, like, I have cases. I have some, uh, not all young people, uh, but driving back from Colorado, and they've been at the ski lift or out with friends, and they've decided to bring back a currently illegal agricultural commodity, typically in a waxy or edible form. And though that was just an eight-piece blister pack for $18 at the dispensary in Trinidad, um, crossed the state line near Dalhart, and that's a second-degree felony. And you're totally guilty. So tell me, would you like me to not do a good job for that person? No, of course you okay. want to do a good job. Uh, well, you bet. And I'm going to go all out for them just as I would for the person who's like, 
man, my daggum brother-in-law, he needed my car for the weekend or my truck. I loaned it to him because he was moving. You know, they were getting kicked out of their apartment. They hadn't paid the bill. I let him borrow my truck. You know, he was even decent enough to put $10 of gas in it. That's got to be his grandma myth on the floorboard, officer. You know, I didn't know it was there. They're still taking you to jail. Um, so we're going to try just as hard for everybody. Every case is just stands on its own legs. You look at what they think the case is, you reinvestigate it, you go to the scene, you talk to witnesses, you see if there's more to it or it's not. You advise your client, you talk to the prosecutor, and you know you work just the same. I will say that the responsibility, personally, of representing somebody you know is actually innocent, had nothing to do with it, or just there, or case in there, it burns on you a little more because innocent people can get convicted in Texas. Innocent people can get convicted in America, even on little bitty cases like three people in the Walmart and one of them shoplifts, but they arrest them all, you know, because you're juveniles, you're together, one of you was the lookout, you know, even if you're not, uh, all the way up to a sexual assault case like the big one in Lubbock that a lot of people know about is Tim Cole, young African-American student at Texas Tech, a young lady accused him of sexually assaulting her and of course it was the traditional dynamic she very tearfully pointed to him in the courtroom and I'll never forget it. it was the worst day of my life you know your senses are more acute under stress and you'd never forget the face of the person who did it well she's very human she was sexually assaulted that was horrible it just wasn't Tim Cole who did it and uh, you know by the even he it was one of the first posthumous exonerations in Texas. He died in prison from complications of asthma, but they later learned who actually did do it. That man confessed, and the young lady who uh, accused him, you know, of course, felt horrible about it, but she wasn't being mean. Uh, she wasn't trying to lie about anybody. It was just normal human processes. Now, being sexually assaulted is not your normal day at work. That is a horrible moment that a acutely pumps all the senses uh, into activation, but it doesn't mean you get better at encoding or perceiving information. In fact, the opposite is true. And we're just now, as a society and as social sciences advance, starting to realize that eyewitness testimony gives us great confidence and comfort, but it might not be as reliable as we think it is. You mentioned going out kind of into the field and reinvestigating mm -hmm. instances. Um, what kind of resources do you have to do that as a defense attorney? Because it seems like it would be kind of different for a defense attorney than it would be for a prosecutor well, to be the, able to go do those this, things. Well, the state has the advantage of going first, and they have mm -hmm. people on salary. And, uh, of course, when I, you, know, you have a, as a defense lawyer, you have a constitutional duty to investigate, right. not only mitigating information in your client's background, psychologically, physically, you know, a life history. Where did you live? How many people were in there? Uh, you have a duty to reinvestigate the case. So, you know, getting in your car and driving over to the scene and just looking around or knocking on doors in the neighborhood with a witness right there by you to keep you from getting conflicted out on a case or deploying and hiring an investigator, whether you do it with your client's funds or you apply under Ake versus Oklahoma and DeFries versus State to the judge to give you resources to hire an investigator. To let them go do that and re-interview witnesses and did you know what police say you said or see if it was all possible see if it all played out and see if and this happens from time to time something was omitted from the reports uh oops there's something else but 
resources are your own mind. The internet can be your friend. It's staggering the number of people who broadcast their life's history and drama to the world for free on Snapchat, Instagram, uh, older people is Facebook, not as much the younger ones, but how much information is out there that people just put out there about themselves. I mean, there are people who sell drugs on Snapchat and Instagram, and they'll meet total strangers to connect up to sell stuff. And uh, they tend to keep doing it, even when they're a quote witness, unquote, against your client on a case, they're still out there banging and slinging and doing. Uh, There's a lot available. And of course, with the TCA listserv, you look back in, this officer's from Mont Bellevue or Beaumont, what can y'all tell us? Oh, she got run out of town. You know, there's a scandal. There's a disclosure trail under Giglio headed your way. Um, it's pretty interesting. That's great. So it does unfortunately look like we're running a little low on time, but um, we were just wondering if, you know, you have any kind of parting advice for prospective sure. students who want to go into criminal law. It's a hard grind. I don't want to tell you anything different. If you'll live simply, meaning economically, not uh, spend for your ego, keep keep your net, in a sense, your overhead low at home, you can make it as a criminal defense lawyer. You don't have to be a prosecutor first. Um, Jerry Goldstein, cheese. Uh, a bunch of great lawyers in Texas were not, quote, prosecutors first. I was, but that's not a requirement. You're going to change, the practice is going to change, but they can't tort reform you about out of business as a criminal defense lawyer. There's always going to be human interaction. Uh, There's always going to be impulsivity, greed, anger, lust. Uh, Everything you can imagine is not going away from human biology and psychology, so there's not going to be a disappearance of criminal law or, on that note, family law. (laughs) There's going to be divorces and fusses. Uh, but you'll change, the practice will change, habits will change, you'll improve, you'll gain different experience and perspective. I know that 30-year-old me had some ideas I was sure about, and now 56-year-old me slaps myself on the forehead and goes, you moron, or life has taught me differently. So you're gonna grow and change, the practice is gonna grow and change, be flexible, you can work as hard as you want to, whatever it takes to do a good job. I put in a lot of hours because that's what it takes for me to do a good job. If you can do it more efficiently, if you can limit your day, and I aspire to this, one day to practice about six hours a day, just take the cases I want to, that can pay for the people I like, work and trust, and then help other people make a lot more money. That'll be fine with me. Uh, that's called the pleasant practice of law. I, I think it's probably an illusion, but you know I'm aiming for it, and we'll see when we get there. But you're gonna change, the world is gonna change. Your very first job is probably not your forever career job. And the big thing I will tell you is that be around good people. Um, 23-year-old law school graduate me didn't want anything to do with doing title searches for a title company. 56-year-old me thinks getting paid by the hour to run title sounds pretty cool. You don't have a judge yanking you around, a client, a client's family, a prosecutor, and when you're a defense lawyer, you can pretty well go to court and do some things where literally everyone, the town, the internet, your client, your client's own family, courthouse personnel, judge, prosecutor is fangs for you. So you better have a thick skin. You better have a good sense of self and some serenity and self-confidence. And that's where your brother and sister criminal defense lawyers can come in, especially through TCDLA or a local association. 
you can get some support. You can get some help when your back's against the wall. Well, thank you very much for uh, joining us today. And uh, thank you to everybody tuning in. And this has been another episode of the Baylor Law Criminal Law Society podcast. Catch you next time.